Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Cholly. now do you employ your other half paid for by the taxpayer Dozens of MPs employ family members in their parliamentary office. Weirdly, you're only allowed to do it if you're elected before 2017. Why, given that it's uh, 15 years since this scandal first blew up, is there anything wrong with it? Are, as one cabinet minister suggested, we getting more bang for our buck, which is one way of calling it, or is it a, a practice which needs to be stamped out? That's coming up in our big thing. In just a moment. First, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel on Tuesday. It should be Finkelfitch, but it, now Danny Finkelstein's gone off for a spa break. So instead, we're joined by David Wanovich and from the Stories of Our Times podcast, Bambi Mana. Let's start, first of all, uh, with um, Russia, uh, David. Um, and the. Uh, the, it, we, we're hearing more and more stories about how Russian, normal Russians, Russian people, and the information they're getting from the Russian state, and the absorption of their of the lies, essentially, it's incredible stories of of people phoning. I, there was a, somebody, there was a story that somebody told on Twitter yesterday about some Ukrainians phoning their mother in Russia, and the mother in Russia saying, "No, it must have been Ukrainians who did this." Um, it, and what it tells us about the, what it's like in Russia right now. Um, I think this is terrifying, not least because we had a kind of model about how this might go, which was with significant sanctions, um, ordinary Russians would turn on the government or at least put pressure on the government to adopt uh, something other than uh, a a, a massively aggressive and quasi-genocidal view of Ukraine. Um, And I think we were rather, I I think, I think psychologically, some of us were rather banking on the idea that this would that this would happen. Um, and as far as we can see, it's really difficult to tell for sure. But as far as we can see, that's not what's happening at all. And what you've got is much more like a position. And of course, it's always bad to use um, uh, uh, Nazi uh, comparisons. Um, uh, 
unless they're really warranted. Um, what you do seem to have is a population which does seem significant proportion of which regards Ukrainians as having no significant rights, Russia to be entirely in the uh, in the right. Everything that happens which is uh, problematic is put down to external forces or something else. And Putin is widely supported, which would seem to suggest that the, the kind of popular route to change uh, in Russia may simply not be open. And the other thing I want to say about this is, if that is right, uh, and, and it looks like it's being right, it also suggests just how vulnerable populations are to this kind of closing down of discussion, debate, and, if you like, the kind of monopoly on information, creating an atmosphere which they actually respond to than we, than we like to think, thinking about other countries, not least uh, a country like Hungary, where effectively the, the government is doing something at the earliest stages of what Putin has done in Russia. Manfin, it's, it's difficult with lots of these, the same is probably true of the pandemic, our own sort of personal optimism bias. Mm. We want this thing to end in the most peaceful way properly uh, possible. So um, early signs of a few people in Moscow waving placards leads us to believe, oh, the entire Russian population of rising will end up rising up against uh, Putin. And actually, it's yeah. sort of it's a it's a reality check for us that that just hasn't happened in trying to get our heads around why. Well, I think there's a few things going on there. I think we do have an optimism bias where we sort of assumed that sanctions and, you know, the first few signs of protest might lead to some greater movement. But firstly, I think we've ignored the fact that half the world hasn't sanctioned Russia. They're not suffering as much as we think they are because they're still able to sell energy to China. They still have a market. Um, The other thing is, I think it's more than optimism bias. I think we just we don't always understand the Russian mindset. You know, um, to be perfectly honest, back in February, even though we could see the troops sort of gathering around, uh, you know, all around the border of Ukraine and the signs were there that there would be an invasion. Part of me kept thinking they can't possibly do it because state media, every message coming out of every Russian politician, uh, Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, you know, the, the messages coming out of the Kremlin were that, look, the West has lost its mind. It seems to think we're going to invade Ukraine. And I sort of kept thinking, how on earth do you turn around, invade Ukraine and tell your people that actually the West was yeah. right all along and you 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 were lying to them? And I thought you can't, you couldn't possibly do that. And I think the difference is you couldn't possibly do that in the West because we would lose faith in our government. Whereas in Russia, you can do that. And half of the population will see it as a sign of strength. They'll sort of think there is some great theory theory behind it and this is a big power move and you know I, I, I've been having conversations with older Russian friends and I keep hearing that and I, find, I just find it baffling I can't understand how they don't mind being lied to by their government um, how they're willing to believe the messages that are coming out and and a lot of them and I think it sort of goes back to sort of the Soviet past will always be more willing to believe a conspiracy theory than anything that sounds logical to us um, but I do think that you know my, my only cause for hope really is that I think there is a generation gap in Russia. So I think while older parts of the population who lived through the Soviet era, you know, they do just listen more blindly to the government message and they're willing to take it on board for the sense of a greater Russia at the end of it. I think younger people who have been used to getting their information on Twitter and Instagram and all of that suddenly shut down, I sort of have slightly more hope that they're a bit more sort of critical of the stuff they're hearing on state media, but I just don't know how that sort of evolves into a meaningful movement against the government. I think it's just too hard. Well, it's partly, 
I think you've both slightly touched on this, but David, it's partly the sort of psychological leap you have to make, isn't it? It's like that old Michelin Webb sketch where the the Nazis all saying to themselves, "Are we are we the baddies?" And if yeah. you've been, if you've gone along with the Putin worldview of you know Russia, Great Mother Russia, up until now, suddenly having to make the mental leap that, but is you you it's sort of having to admit, "Well, I'm an idiot." And actually, none of us want to do that. So trying to find excuses or ways round or self, it's, it's self-justification. It's not yeah. justifying what he's doing. It's justifying what you've done as well, which is much harder. Well, yeah, in the first instance, there's your kind of investment, your own investment in, if you like, the lies you've already been told, what you've chosen to believe. And therefore, if you choose suddenly to say, I don't believe any of that, then the whole thing comes crashing down. Why believe any of it? And so on. So you don't believe your government uh, in anything. Um so I think I think that's absolutely right. The other thing is that most people will, if if you are morally implicated in something that you don't think you can do much about, um, I think there must be a tendency for you to try and excuse yourself in some way, and that means excusing your government in some kind of way. Then you link that to if you've got this weird combination, which may be the Russian thing which um uh Manvin's talking about, but which actually you can see, I think, in in a number of situations, a combination of a belief in your own greatness and yet a belief in your own having been slighted and your own sense of grievance. And so, a sense of grief uh, one of the things I've really discovered, uh, I feel I feel I personally discovered in the last 30s, and other people can as well, is just how easily senses of grievance are mobilized and how easily people uh, can be convinced that somehow or other they are being done down, even when actually they're not, and they're in a perfectly good position. And how much they resent other people saying they've got a grievance as a result, when those people do have a genuine grievance. And I'll make one final thing uh, about this, which is about our own kind of belief systems, um, really. Um, I was told this by, uh, I had a stalker for a while, and I didn't know what to do about this particular person. And I tried to engage with her, and it made things worse. And my, a friend of mine who's a psychoanalyst explained it to me, said, you, you're suffering under a delusion. And the delusion you're suffering under is that you can change her by something that you do. You know, you can try and kind of jolly her out of this sort of stalking behaviour. Um, and that's the fantasy you've got, and you've got to lose it. And I think we have a similar sort of fantasy with regard to, say, the Russian people, that we can jolly them out of their kind of situations. And Manvin and I were just having a little discussion before we started about off-ramps, et cetera. And I think that's a kind of, that, that, that's a kind of relative of this. If we can only provide X with an off-ramp so that they can get out of the situation, we can somehow control their behaviour. And maybe we've got to accept in this situation that we can't provide off-ramps and so on. It's just not down to us. Yeah, it's fascinating. And we'll, um, uh, well, in fact, somebody's, <laughs> somebody's helpfully teed up the next uh, topic of conversation. Uh, so, uh, Terence has been in touch. We're talking about Putin closing down discussion and info, yet Tories are seeking to close down Channel 4. I mean, I think the Tories have probably drawn some distinction there. Um, uh, the seeking to at least uh, <laughs> privatise Channel 4. Uh, uh, a subject which I sort of somehow struggle to get too worked up about, but also really can't understand the rationale for. Manvin, have you managed to get your head around the logic of, of seeking to sell off Channel 4? No, I don't think I don't think they've presented the best argument for it, to be honest, which is why I, I struggle to understand it. Um, I I just I I'm really sick of hearing. I mean, there, there was talk of this with the BBC, too. But, you know, sort of they need to be able to compete with Netflix and other streaming services. And this is the future. And uh, I just really worry that the people making decisions don't seem to understand the media industry. You know, Netflix is currently what 
15 billion pounds in debt. Um, you know, we don't know how that's going to pan out. We don't know if it'll uh, if it'll necessarily survive in five or 10 years time. And if it does, where the subscription charges will have to go up a hell of a lot and whether they'll just make less content in order to, to make up the debt. Um, so the idea that anybody should be following that as a model is really alarming. Um, and it also fails to understand part of what Channel 4 does, you know, its place in our national life, which is to be sort of an alternative voice to, to you know, it's always been very good with sort of um, uh, programming for, for, you know, accessibility, for example. So, you know, people, it, there'll be programs which sort of have some, somebody doing sign language through them. It does a lot of things for our national life, which Netflix doesn't begin to do. And it's slightly mad to sort of compare the two. Um, and, and actually, you know, the, the, the history of where Channel 4 is great, David, you know, whether it's like the, the, the coverage of the Paralympics, um, uh, minority programming, giving a voice to whether, you know, other parts of the country. Might. And also, I mean, actually, um, you, if you look at It's a Sin, It's a Sin, one of the biggest TV hits of last year, chronicling um, the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, was turned down by almost every other broadcaster before it ended up at Channel 4. Uh, but they were willing to take a risk on it. Um, I, don't, I just don't under, I don't quite see the logic of uh what we really because it's not costing the taxpayer any money yeah, it, it's okay. and it's a distinctive voice what's the problem it's trying to solve um uh privatization of channel four and that's the thing that nobody can answer what, what what is the problem there it is fully digitized you can find all kinds of stuff on uh the channel four uh platforms and so on so it's not true that younger audiences who don't watch uh, tv in real time can't find it uh, and so on and won't actually they do that's so that's not true um is it true who's the netflix correspondent currently in kiev you won't find one. There is no such person. So it's pretty obvious to even the kind of dimmest person that Channel 4 is doing a series of things that Netflix and other streamers can't do and won't do and don't regard themselves as being set up to do. So it has a different function. Then there's the function it has in encouraging um, uh, independent companies and so on as a kind of reliable uh, uh uh, form of uh, funding for, for for that bit of the that's that's still important possibly not quite as vital as it was but nevertheless uh, pretty vital so the only thing that you can think of is either the government believes dogmatically that the thing things shouldn't be in the public sector somehow or other or it wants the dosh it's quite simply it wants the dosh i mean i can see what will happen at the end of this in 10 years time this will be Channel 4 or whatever was Channel 4 will be owned by an, some uh, sheikh, uh, some sovereign wealth fund in the Gulf who wants to do a whole lot of culture washing um, uh, and attempts to run it in that kind of way. That's where it will end up because nobody else will particularly uh, want to invest. I mean, by the time they have hedged this around with the qualifications about the public service uh, broadcasting elements which have got to be maintained, all of which incidentally will be dropped after 10 or 15 years, um, as a lot of them were in the case of ITV eventually, um, then in that case it will just end up as the plaything of, uh, of somebody who, a, a kind of super Lebedev, I suppose that's the problem. Is it either gets sucked into something else, in which case it sort of disappears and no longer performs its function, or it just becomes, like you said, a sort of well, some people have used the phrase culture washing and and so on. Uh, basically, somebody not very nice from outside the UK comes in instead to try and use it for their influence. And it's such a weird thing that the the sort of people in the Conservative Party these days who sort of think you know they think they're the heirs to Margaret Thatcher seem, but they, they seem determined to, to, to sell off a thing that Margaret Thatcher helped set up. It's such a very odd. 
Um, I just don't, yeah, I don't really understand the logic. But then sometimes if you try to apply logic to things that politicians of all parties these days do, um, you get yourself into a right tangle. Um, uh, just finally, uh, David, um, the to- <laughs> talking of things that defy your logic, the Tories and wind farms. I do find this one strange. And so I've been following this one for years. Um, what happens is, uh, happened for over years, is that people said wind farms are a good form of energy. They're pretty kind of cheap. Onshore wind is the kind of cheapest of all. And actually, it looks certainly no worse than pylons, which you perfectly well accepted to carry electricity across, across the place. And actually, many people think they look a bit nicer. And Not the majority of voters, certainly not the majority of voters, even in country uh, areas uh, where a lot of where some of the wind farms will be placed. Not all of them, by the way, but some of them will be placed. Activists there get up on their on their hind legs about how it will spoil the view over, you know, from this to that beacon or something like that from their back cottage window. A, a big campaign's got the Conservative MPs hate the idea of it. They would honestly, they would rather. The planet ended in a fireball in 25 years' time than have a wind farm blocking the view of Dartmoor for the next uh, for the next couple of years. And you, you hear the and same thing. They sort of talk about the impact in Norfolk. Norfolk, most of Norfolk will be underwater if we don't do something. <laughs> well, it, it, exactly. And, and do you think, is this something psychological about wind farms? Is it something about kind of turbines that, that, that I mean, and the, the, they'll even make up things like how wind turbines are a threat to children. And you think low flying children or i mean <laughs> it's very strange and i would love to know the psychological answer if anybody has it as to why they feel that way um, it's funny isn't it because you know we look at windmills and there's 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 a beauty to them there is something rather elegant about sort of seeing uh, a, you know the the windmill in action and, and wind farms are sort of similar there is an elegance to them if you're willing to see it yeah, yeah. but the, the the conservative policy is so bizarre because it's sort of caught up between the nimbyism of sort of parts of their constituency in in, in the country and at the same time a, 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 a huge conservative priority on national security so there was this really surreal situation where quasi Kwarteng was actually saying this isn't because of climate change <laughs> You know, we're not doing this because of climate change or net zero, because obviously nobody wants to be look like they're supporting that. But we're doing this for national security. <laughs> this is your way of fighting the Russians. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing it. We're doing it not to protect the planet, but protect no. the country. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a patriotic duty rather than a social one. Manveen Ranama and David Ivanovich. Then, of course, you read David in the Times every week. Subscribe, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. But listen to Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast. Just search wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. Right, coming up, keeping it in the family, but why are we paying for it? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Yes, 
So, in May 2007, almost 15 years ago, a story appeared in the Sunday Times. A senior Tory MP is paying his son to act as a parliamentary assistant, even though he is still a full-time undergraduate at university. It revealed how Frederick Conway was paid at the rate of £981 a month from the parliamentary staffing allowance handed to his father, Derek, a former government whip. The row that followed, it was... I remember I'd been in uh, Westminster for a couple of years by this point. It was a huge story. The row that followed paved the way for what then became the eventual release of the details of every expense claim, of every MP, the duck houses, the moats, the fake mortgages on second homes. A row which ultimately, you could argue, reshaped British politics. But now, a decade on, a decade and a half on even, we are still debating about MPs having their family on the payroll after it emerged that David Warburton, a Tory MP accused of sexual harassment, drug taking, and not declaring a loan from a Russian businessman. He denies any wrongdoing. But he employs his wife in his office. Two of the complainants who came forward and spoke to the Sunday Times, they weren't comfortable addressing the matter because David Warburton's wife, Harriet, leads the HR department. So staff who wanted to make a complaint about the MP had to go to the MP's wife, and she is standing by him. What's even weirder when you look into this is it's only MPs elected before 2017 who can employ family members. We had loads of texts and emails about this uh, yesterday as we were discussing the Sunday Times investigation. So we thought we'd dig around in it a bit more to try and explain the exact system of how MPs are paid, who can work for them, and why some of them can employ their family members and others can't. Yesterday we heard from the Welsh Secretary Simon Hart, who defended the idea of um, MPs employing family members, he employs his wife, Abigail. I think that's in, it actually pretty insulting towards the many uh, uh, husbands and wives and partners who do a really good job in Parliament, work bloody hard um, and provide the taxpayer real value for money. I think if you want to single out people and say whether they're actually valued for money or not, I think that's something which needs to be, you know, I think you need to tread really quite carefully that was Simon Hart talking about how the taxpayer gets more bang for their buck by paying for wives to do the work. Jenny Simmons is a parliamentary staffer and also chairs the uh, GMB union in Parliament, which represents staff members. She told me why they want MPs to lose most of the power when hiring their close res- relatives. We're working towards a broader aim of making MPs not be the employers for MP staff. So our GMB branch wants to make it so that MPs can choose their staff when they're hiring, like a broader employer would, but they don't employ them. Uh, the House of Commons or the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, so that's IPSA, they would be the employers. And so if we had HR complaints, we would have a formal HR department with the House of Commons or with IPSA. And it doesn't mean that, that all their selection is taken away from the MP but it does mean that they are not directly responsible for how much the staff are paid, what hours they have to work, what conditions they have to work in. I think it will it will take away a lot of that kind of really dangerous power dynamic that we struggle with. That was Jenny Simmons speaking to me yesterday. She was talking about IPSA there, the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. Well, we asked someone from IPSA to come on the show today. They said no one was available with 24 hours notice, but they did just before we came on air this morning, answer some of our questions. Like, how much does an MP get paid? MPs are currently paid £84,144 from April the 1st this year. This is in line with the decision taken back in 2015 to adjust MPs' pay at the same rate as changes in public sector earnings as published by the Office of National Statistics. They have had the first pay increase uh, in two years. MPs' pay is decided by IPSA, 
which has a legal responsibility to review MPs' pay in the first year of each new parliament and, as appropriate, make changes. How much do those deciding the salary get paid? The board members are paid at a daily rate of £700 for the chair and £400 for ordinary members. How much can an MP spend on staff? The annual staffing budget for MPs is currently £237,433 for sorry, £430 for London MPs and £221,750 for non-London area MPs. And MPs can then decide how they spend that. Now, the reason that some MPs can employ their family members and not others gets very complicated. We should also point out Ipsa calls family members connected parties rather than family members. Since 2017, MPs have not been able to employ connected parties, says Ipsa. We acknowledge the great work carried out by connected parties, but their recruitment is out of step with modern working practices. The, the body that oversees uh, the running of MPs' offices says the idea of employing family members or connected parties is out of step with modern working practices. MPs should follow a recruitment process that is transparent and encourages diversity, Ipsa added. Connected parties or family members recruited before 2017 have been allowed to retain their roles. They should be gradually phased out over successive parliaments. should point out, of course, that's now uh, five years ago. We've had a general election since. Although MPs receive their salary from Ipsa, they're not employees in any legal sense. They are elected officials. I asked if they were self-employed. MP staff are legally employed by the MP directly and the MP decides their salary within Ipsa's guidelines. So I then asked, well, what does a member of staff do to complain about an MP? What if their manager is married to the MP they wish to complain about? Ipsa said, the independent complaints and grievance scheme is Parliament's independent mechanism for handling complaints of bullying, harassment or sexual misconduct. We encourage staff to contact the ICGS helpline to discuss their experiences with an independent confidential advisor. I then said, has any thought been given to increasing the amount MPs are paid to attract better candidates and prevent second jobs scandals? The Committee on Standards of Public Life, yet another separate body, has made some proposals about second jobs for MPs. This is not an area that Ipsa is responsible for, and there are no plans to change the overall pay level for MPs. Right, so you've got your head around all of that. You're connected. When's a connected party, not a family member, and so on? Well, let's speak now to someone who uh, actually helped break that story back in 2007 about Derek Conway and his son. Holly Watt, as an author and journalist, worked at the Sunday Times at the time, then joined the Telegraph and was there during the MP's expenses scandal. And Holly joins me now. Hi, Holly. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. You must be having a bit of a sense of deja vu here. Uh, fi- almost 15 years to the day, we're having another... You must... Maybe even 15 years ago, right now, you were looking into <laughs> Derek Conway and his son. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it's sort of... I remember when we were looking at MP's expenses at the Telegraph in 2009, being like, well, this feels really Groundhog Day. Like, we flagged all this up as a problem two years ago. Now... 2022, we are still flagging up the problem saying, you know, how on earth is this something people think is a reasonable situation? And how did you, uh, take me back to 2007, how did you first get wind of this story and then stand it up? Because, I mean, it's, it's hard now trying to get information out of where money's spent and decisions are made and so on. But but for you to access, the, it was such an opaque system, wasn't it? At MPs, expenses, MP pay, salary, staffing. Well, it was actually what it's actually one of those things. Was, it was unfortunate for Derek Conway, but his surname began with C, because um, 
my source, who I've never revealed who that was, uh, got into a situation where they could see um, this list of names uh, of, of MPs who were also employing their family members. And they very quickly started writing down the list and they got as far as C before um, they were interrupted. And so we had this list of MPs and we worked with <laughs> I know, I mentioned this before. Um, and we got to Derek Conway and um, we were looking to find out as much as we could about um, the relatives who they're employing. And back in 2007, Facebook was still quite a novelty. Um, but unfortunately for Derek Conway, his son uh, was very clearly at Newcastle University, which we could see on Facebook. So that's really how we first got a sense of it, um, which seems that obviously now Facebook is so embedded in how we do everything. Um, but back then it was like, I remember the Sunday Times sort of senior management being like, well, I mean, how does this work exactly? <laughs> These days, you'd probably struggle to find an eighteen-year-old who was on Facebook, um, uh, but you probably use a different. You probably use a different platform, and um, the the rules. I mean, it really did sort of set light to the whole issue then of MPs paying expenses, didn't it? Yes, I think what I particularly remember about it was Derek Conway was so kind of confused about why he was being targeted. And of course, you know, to us, because we could see only one tiny element of what was going on, we were like, well, of course, this is, you know, shocking and egregious behaviour. But obviously, he was working on the other side of the fence where this was totally normalised. And, you know, somebody over there was having their rent cleaned on taxpayer expenses, somebody else was having their duck house put up. The fact that his sons were being paid to do something that was never clear what on earth they were doing, you know, that you could see why Derek Conway was so sort of flabbergasted, quite frankly. And um, then we had, you, you were then at the, the Telegraph when the uh, MPs' expenses scandal properly exploded. Mm. How many PDFs do you think you looked through during that period? I mean, thousands and thousands. Um, although, actually, I went on to the Guardian after that, and I did the Panama Papers there, and that was over 11 million documents. So in hindsight, MPs' expenses wasn't too <laughs> <laughs> No, but it was, I mean, it was it was hugely complicated. And again, it was sort of quite, you know, back then the House of Commons, the way they manage expenses was quite kind of like chaotic, to be honest. So you have like strange bits of paper here and, you know, none of it, trying to make sense of it at all was actually quite complicated. And then part of the reason why the MPs' expenses scandal blew up was because basically what had happened was they tried to keep down MPs' pay and say, look, you just max out on your expenses. And, every, you know, that that appeared to just be... The deal that, you know, if you're coming up to the deadline, go and buy yourself a big sofa or, or something. Um, uh, but uh, then, you know, the, 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 the family members thing sort of slightly fell out of the news a bit. But it, it's, it strikes me as extraordinary now that if you were elected before 2017 and you're, you had your other half on the payroll, they, they could still stay there, despite the body that's in charge of it saying it's, uh, what was it, um, uh, out of step with modern working practices. I mean, but I'm once just, again, it's just a stitch up, isn't it? That the MPs who were there before 2017 have stitched it up for them and their other halves, and it, it's just the new ones who have to do things differently. I, mean, I was listening to Simon Hart yesterday, and I found it completely weird that somebody is in a position of serious responsibility and can't see what an enormous conflict of interest is created by paying your own husband or wife out of public funds. I mean, you've got this archaic um, employment system within Parliament where, you know, the MP is in charge of it. Um, and, you know, this, how can you possibly have proper oversight? I mean, in my, in my relationship, you know, some days I feel like doing my job and other days I feel like lying around watching Bridgerton. And if it was my partner being like, well, you can't be lying around watching Bridgerton, I'd be like, well, that's what I feel like doing. You know, how do you actually <laughs> properly you know, manage that? Um, you know, so I find it completely weird that the situation exists and also even more strange that people doing it can't see that it's odd. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, we, we know, I mean, looking at the Harriet Warburton and, and her husband's situation, 
you know, I mean, how on earth can you complain about HR to somebody's wife? I mean, it, you know, it just seems implausible that people think that's a, a sensible thing. We've had so many messages on this. Uh, Tom says, I don't have an issue with this in principle. Better than unpaid skivvies. It needs to be real work or jobs, but it's not something I feel should be banned. Uh, someone else on Twitter says, I'm not an apology for, uh, apologist for this at all, but one MP family friend, when as a child I asked him about this, said, well, we wouldn't see each other otherwise, which is another argument. But then David from London says, I used to work in an MP's office. They did not have any family members on the payroll. Miraculously, the office functioned very effectively. We had great response time to constituents' inquiries and the notion that only family members would be willing to put in the hours required was proved utterly false. MP's offices can work perfectly well without family members and any suggestion otherwise is nonsense. That said, it was a Liberal Democrat MP I worked for who has since been unseated, so perhaps it didn't work as well as I thought. Although I think there might have been other factors at play there. Um, do you do you think, finally, Holly, we'll ever reach a point where we think the system is working properly? Because ultimately, because they are elected and because they are sort of at the very top of the tree, they are ultimately going to decide their own rules. I mean, I think, you know, what Ips is hoping is that these people will gradually leave Parliament over the next few years and that will cease to be an issue. Um, you know, from our point of view as journalists, you know, one day the idea that there'll be no skullduggery at all going on in Parliament is not an appealing one. But... <laughs> Um, now, I think eventually, you know, we are 2022 now, the world of employment is substantially different to where it was in 2007. Um, and you know, it will hopefully carry on going on. But it's a shame that Parliament is so far behind the trend on this, um, you know, when it should be leading. Holly, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you for that little trip down memory lane. And poor old Derek Colmway, he just had the wrong surname. Uh, Holly, Holly Watt there uh, was a Sunday Times journalist when they broke the story about Derek Conway had his son on the payroll. The taxpayer was paying him £981 a month while he was also a full-time student. I think it was Newcastle University. Well, let's now speak to Stephen Hammond, Conservative MP for Wimbledon, who joins me now. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Matt. Hi. Now, you employ your wife, Sally, as your office manager and secretary. Why, 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 I suppose, is the first question. Well, she's worked in Parliament well before I was elected. Uh, she was admirably qualified. Um, I, Ipsa weren't entirely right with you, of course, is that whilst there is an overall allowance, you can't just pay anyone on your staff what you wish to. You have to pay them within certain pay grounds for certain qualities of jobs. People have to prove they have the competent or you have to sign a contract they're competent to do those jobs. So my wife is, um, yeah, it, uh, it happened that she had worked in Parliament for many years before I was elected. Um, she's she, I think I don't think I defy you to find any of my constituents who, do, who say that she doesn't do a very good job. Is there something? I mean, Ipsa also said when I asked them about why some MPs can employ family members and others can't. Some reason they call them connected parties, which strikes me as slightly strange jargon. Sure. They say we acknowledge the great work carried out by connected parties, but their recruitment is out of step with modern working practices. Do you agree? Well, I, I suppose that means you've got to think quite carefully about what you think modern working practices are. They also weren't quite correct, because in most cases, the HR, in fact, all cases in the House of Commons, the HR department is the independent complaints and grievance process, uh, really, largely, if you have a problem with uh, the way your office is working. There's obviously uh, the MP is effectively the HR department for people's pay in the office, because he, he has to make all the, she he or she has to make that decision. Uh, in terms of working practices, um, well, you, know, you have to ask yourself, there are plenty of family businesses up and down the country who will say that their working practices 
um, uh, work very well. So I, it's a question. I think that the, your correspondent who said that they can work perfectly well without connected off parties is correct. But you know, many off MPs, as Simon Hart rightly pointed out, where wives or their partners, whatever, work really hard for their constituents. Uh, and I think you've got to be. It's a. Uh, I think as people acknowledge, it's not a. a it is not the normal type of job, and therefore, whilst I accept that some people are frustrated by it, I think uh, for a large extent, uh, to a lot of people, there is a, a number of people who work really hard. I suppose the thing is, if you've got, so according to the latest figures, I think 86 MPs employing family members in the last uh, financial year, there were 650 MPs altogether. Nobody's suggesting that the other, oh, I've got to do some maths now, 500, <laughs> 570-80-odd, are not doing a good job. Their offers are not being well won. No, isn't there a case, isn't there a case for just saying? I mean, I'm assuming you're not suggesting that, that any of the 86 are necessarily doing a bad job either. Well, no, but I suppose there was a, there's an interesting question about... Uh, we've been basically right, spent look, 15 look, years look. now having bad, uh, having these cases. Wouldn't it just be better well, there are, to be there have also, clean? unfortunately, been other cases of where there have been those uh, comments about harassment by in-offices both of MPs and others, where they don't employ their family members. So I don't think you should take a particular case and try and generalise. I think the key point is uh, the reason why it was chosen in 2017 was because a number of people had, were on contracts at that stage. Uh, there would have been significant uh, employment tribunal uh, issues uh, if you had chosen to get rid of people in, uh, prior to that. So they, a decision was made, rightly in my opinion, that those who were employed within the grounds of what IPSA set out, which is pay bounds for certain types of jobs, contracts signed, that um, those members of those uh, connected, which I agree is a very odd term, <laughs> prior to 2017, could stay, could stay continuing working. Um, and that, that was the decision made uh, rightly, in my opinion, at the time. Just finally, the, the Ipsa statement said to us that they, they expected them to be uh, connected parties, family members, should be gradually phased out over successive parliaments. Are you planning to phase out your wife? Uh, I'm not planning to phase out my wife uh, until I make the decision, or she w- either she wishes to stop working or that I, I, I take the decision to stand down, neither of which uh, I'm taking at the moment, Matt. Stephen Hammond, really good to speak to you because Stephen Hammond's Conservative MP for Wimbledon. His wife, Sally, works as office manager and secretary. Should point out, we contacted an awful lot of uh, MPs yesterday to come on the show today. Uh, I'm very grateful that Stephen was willing to come on and, uh, and join the discussion. Finally, let's speak to Sir Alistair Graham, former chairman of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. Uh, good morning, Alistair. Good morning. Um, what do you make of this, this, this idea? Do you think that MPs should be employing uh, members of their own family on the taxpayer to work in what are actually quite small teams? Well, I take a simple view that anybody who's employed out of public funds, uh, before they're employed, they should have to go through an open competitive process. And uh, the trouble is with wives who are being Uh, employed by members of parliament, it can very often look to their constituents or to uh, members of the public that this is just another way of boosting the family uh, income, which uh, uh, I think is inappropriate, which is why there should be a competitive process. And I think uh, 
it's unfortunate we've got this division between uh, MPs who are elected before 2017 being able to employ their family members uh, and those after 2017 not being able to do so. Uh, I think that IPSA should have a second look at this and give notice to those MPs who do employ family members that the arrangements will have to end after, say, the next general election. Um, I suppose that's... Is, is, is the root cause of this problem that ultimately the rules end up being decided by MPs or certainly influenced by MPs? And so clearly the people who were MPs before 2017... So, well, we'll carry on doing it. It's just the new ones. Um, uh, and it, it just seems extraordinary. You've got the, the, the supposedly independent body, uh, which oversees all of this, saying it's out of step with modern practices and should be, modern working practices and should be phased out. Well, the MPs employing their other halves say, oh, no, it's all above board. I've got no plans to phase it out at all. Yes. Well, I mean, we should remember, I was, uh, just after I gave up being chairman of the Committee on Standards, my last public statement was to warn MPs that I thought MPs' expenses was about to become a serious political issue. And it was Gordon Brown, who was then Prime Minister, who took the decision, rightly in my view, that you should take away control of MPs' expenses issues from MPs themselves, which is what was the position before the scandal, and give it to an independent body, uh, IPSA. And I think IPSA have just slightly ducked out of the issue uh, and uh, not decided to get rid of all uh, employment of family members and and went for a compromise, I think, presumably to calm some MPs' uh, down on the issue. Uh, but I think, as I've said before, they should have a fresh look at it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?